I've heard it said that greed isn't really a financial issue, but one of the heart. There may not be a case that demonstrates this thought so well as what happened to Ann Cooper Hewitt at the hands of her mother. And it's all in the name of her mother trying to inherit more money from her late ex-husband's trust. Strap in as we go back in time to explore a case that will likely offend you on multiple different levels. Welcome, welcome, welcome in, guys. I'm so excited to be back recording, figuring out how to make an entertaining show for y'all again. All the weekly stress that goes into it. But this is our first episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden for 2022. I am, as always, your magnetic, curiously magnetic host, Brad. And if you're looking for some good old true crime hosted by a former criminal defense trial attorney, guess what? You found it. I hope all is well in your world, and I truly hope that you've had a very boring start to 2022, because that's something we all freaking deserve. Today's case, not a classic fit for our podcast. I'll admit that up front. There's no murder, there's no missing person, nothing weird. But we do have this unusual crime, and it's it's pretty cruel, pretty heinous. And it's a wild enough story that I thought it may tickle y'all's fancy bone. Another fun bit, since it takes place during the early part of the 20th century, we're going to be discussing a lot of government policies and procedures and laws and things like that, that it's going to offend a lot of y'all. I'd say 95% of y'all. Really, unless you're a rich white male, you're probably going to be offended by some part of this. Shocker, right? Now, before we begin, I want you to know that, you know, we've done a little bit of a spit shine to the podcast. You know, so we, we changed the intro a little bit. Outro has been changed a little bit, too. We've also improved in some better audio gear, and I hope that's noticeable. I would love to hear y'all's feedback on whether or not this sounds better. Or, God forbid, if it sounds worse. I may spend a few days crying, but, you know, the truth is what it is. If you haven't noticed, I have to report that we've shut down our Instagram. It wasn't something that was forced upon me by the powers that be at Facebook. It was uh, a choice I made because of some problems we were having. Uh, we will open it back up. It's just a question of when. For all I know, this it may be rocking and rolling by the time this episode is tickling your earballs. So if you're looking for us on Instagram and can't find us, that's why. And I also need to apologize. Apparently, when I did the last episode of 2021, it's supposed to be this motivational episode, right? And in it, I made a joke about, you know, you got to do what keeps, keeps you going. If that's kicking puppies, then kick some puppies. I didn't really mean that, and I it apparently came across that I was being serious at that point, and I apologize for that. I have three puppies of my own. Whenever I step on their paw, I feel like a horrible monster for days afterwards, so I am not an advocate of kicking puppies. Please don't take that part seriously. It was just an attempt at a joke by me that failed. So, th th this episode... 
it's different and it's long and I think we should just jump straight in. Now we're going to start our coverage of the story of Ann Cooper Hewitt by ignoring Ann Cooper Hewitt. We're going to instead focus on her mother, Marion. Why? Because Marion is our antagonist and she is a gold digger and she is what makes this case so interesting. We begin back in 1903. Isn't it fun to say ought? Don't you wish we could do that? We should have taken advantage of that in the early 2000s. She is, Marion is 19 years old when she arrives in New York City. The Big Apple. Spider-Man's turf. She's a newlywed. She's married this handsome young Spanish doctor by the name of Pitard. Burguri. I don't know. It's a Spanish name, and for some reason my tongue can't pronounce it despite all the help from my wife. Um, we have a Peter that enters into the story a little bit later on, so it's going to get confusing because I know I pronounce Peter and Peter exactly the same way. So I, I probably should go with their last names, but since I can't pronounce Peter's last name, we're stuck doing this. So you may have to play a little bit of a guessing game. Um, Marianne was a looker, and she knew it, and she loved it. She was also terribly jealous such that her husband's medical practice was actually located in San Francisco. But she would spend all day sitting outside harassing any females that went in to see her husband. You know, when they would come out, she would accost them by asking questions like, Oh, my dear, did he make you disrobe to inspect your sore throat? You know, just petty little crap like that. Um... Obviously wasn't good for the practice, so Peter was like, you go to New York City, I've got some family there, I'll close up shop here, and we'll be together then. Now, Peter was able to do that because his family was, like, super wealthy. I think just his inheritance of the family wealth was somewhere between 8 and 10 million, which at this time, if Google is truthful, was worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 million. So... He didn't need to practice medicine. He wanted to do it to help people out. And Marion was making that impossible. But, you know, to cut to the chase, Marion decides that they're going to move in with Peter's uh, brother-in-law. Mainly because he was like the it guy to know in New York City at this time. And Marion's dream was to become the it girl of New York City. And, you know, she presented herself as this, the daughter of this wealthy aristocrat from Baltimore. And instantly, Peter's family picked up on it being a lie. They, they knew she wasn't. She wasn't cultured in the same way they were. Um, you know, she, she wasn't very well read. She didn't speak any languages other than English. There was just a lot of things that made her look like a phony. And interestingly... Peter's family, like most families in the social elite, kind of knew the lineage of a lot of the wealthier families, not just in New York City, but all along the East Coast. And they had never heard of Marion's family. And the reason they had never heard of Marion's family is because this chick grew up the daughter of a horse cab driver in the backwoods of Alabama, of all stinking places. I mean, we're talking total redneck Hicksville. 
by the way, by uh, totally unrelated, but you know, this show is is recorded in Alabama and is our number one true crime podcast from the state. So yeah, yes. Anyway, um, Marion takes great offense at not being taken at face value. So she does move out and finds a home for her and Peter to enjoy on their own. And whenever her family or her in-laws would have these big parties or galas, balls, whatever, they'd get invites and Peter would be like, oh, all right, let's go. And she'd say, oh, I'm so sorry, honey. I, we, we have tickets to the theater. Or however she spoke, I don't know. I, that's got to be a close approximation, though. And meanwhile, Peter's family was kind of making a mockery of Marion throughout the society pages. And she couldn't fight back with money. You know, she she wasn't independently wealthy, obviously. But she could fight back with her charms because that woman could cast some hexes. And the society pages loved her. And she added this knack for just showing up at the right place at the right time. You know, she was always at the hot new restaurant. She was always wearing the brand new fashions. She was good at manipulating the media. And she became kind of a starlet to the society folks. And, of course, she did it to rub it in Peter's family's face, but then she ended up enjoying the exercise. She also had a nasty habit when it came to gambling. She loved to gamble. And she wasn't like these blue hairs that sit down at slot machines and just feed quarter after quarter into it. No, no, no. This woman would bet so much that Peter would have to go to the casino and physically remove her because she would place bets so large that it would bankrupt him if she lost. Can you imagine placing the equivalent of a $300 million bet? And it's ridiculous. And that was her way to have fun. Peter thought the only way to really calm her down would be to make her a mother. So he impregnated her and she gave birth to Peter Jr. But all Marion did was take this baby, toss it off on her mother-in-law and go right back to what she had been doing. You know, rubbing shoulders with the social elite and trying to stay in front of the, the society pages. There was an incident at a horse show in New Jersey where she and Peter attended and it became a circus. Um, they were seated in their private box and people started coming up and introducing themselves to Marianne and getting to know her and chatting with her and, you know, flirting with her a little bit. And we're not talking, you know, two or three people. We're not talking six or seven people. Literally, it was like the concession stand at a football game at halftime. I mean, it was just bonkers how many people were coming up to her. And it wasn't just folks like you and me. I mean, you had people from the Vanderbilt family, from the Rockefeller family. It was nuts. And this was, you know, she, of course, adored all this attention and the, the newspapers soaked it up. But her husband... This is when things started falling apart in their marriage because Marion ignored him the entire time. Like, she never even had the courtesy to introduce him to the people she was meeting. And he felt like his role in their marriage was simply to hold her coat. So not long after that, he decides he's going back to San Francisco to reopen his medical practice. And it's like Marion never even noticed he was gone. 
And this isn't after years of marriage. Remember, she arrived in New York in 1903. He's back in San Francisco in 1904. So she goes from being so jealous of his patience that she's accosting him to not even noticing he's gone. Uh, eventually, she kind of decides that she needs to look for her next target, and she insists on a she insists upon a divorce, which was really wild at the time because under the law back then, here's one of the first times we get to really offend you. A single woman could go to a department store and open up a credit account of some sort, but a divorced woman had had to have a co-signer on the account and it had to be a male cosigner um and it comes from judges had the attitude at the time that you know the man's job was to work and to provide for the family and the woman's job was to take care of the family and if there was any disharmony going on within the family unit it had to be the wife's fault because she wasn't doing her job so they were very very ins not they were not the least bit sympathetic towards wives that were seeking divorces unless it was a situation where the wife came to the court and said look my husband drinks all the time he abuses us he hasn't worked in weeks the kids are starving i gotta do something i gotta get out of this that situation things were usually cool to a judge but in this situation where she's divorcing just because she wants to judges weren't big on that but she didn't care that's what she wanted she divorced Peter and immediately found this wealthy stockbroker. And when she found the stockbroker, she instantly regretted her decision because this guy was not a player in the society. She was wealthy, but not as wealthy as she was used to. And she started looking for a way to back out of this marriage. And ultimately, she hired an attorney and the attorney was able to argue to the courts that her divorce to Peter was technically flawed, which voided her marriage to the stockbroker as she was still legally married to Peter. So then they go out to California and file another divorce action against Peter, where she, and she's asking for all this alimony and child support. And remember, Peter Jr., she wasn't taken care of. She dumped him off on mother-in-law. So it was kind of ridiculous. It was obviously just a way to squeeze more money out of him. And Peter recognizes. And apparently a conversation was had between him and her where he said, look, I've remarried. I've got my own family. And you're threatening that. And I'm not going to stand for it. So here's what's going to happen. You are going to sign these divorce papers. And if you do not, I am going to send a letter every week to the society papers and explain to them all the crazy things you did during our marriage. You will become the biggest clown of New York. Well, Marianne didn't really like that idea, you know, since she's trying to climb up the ladder in society. So she agreed to his terms and uh, then immediately went back to New York City to look for some more golden booty. And that's when she stumbled into Peter Cooper Hewitt's circle. He was a much older man, 30 years older than her. He was very well respected. 
he came from very good stock, as they would say back then. His uh, dad was the former mayor of New York City. His grandfather had established a uh, tuition-free college to teach people about engineering and science and physics and things like that. Peter himself was actually well-known and very well-respected as an inventor. And it wasn't, he didn't invent things on his own. His knack was taking existing inventions and improving upon them. And his big claim to fame is the original light bulb was very, very, very inefficient. I think I read that it only, only 5% of the electricity it received was converted into light. The rest of that energy was converted into heat. And so you can imagine in like warehouses and factories and just office buildings even, these lights would give off a lot of heat and not much else. Well, he found a way to vastly improve the efficiency of them so that light bulbs work a whole lot more like we expect light bulbs to work today. And so that's really where he made his money. He was also a buddy of Thomas Edison and he worked on several inventions with him, uh, particularly when it came to the telephone. He made some improvements that made telephones like a real usable thing in the real world. Um, but clearly, I think without debate, his greatest invention and what really moved America forward is Peter's credited with inventing Jell-O. So can you imagine a world without Jell-O? And we all thank Peter for that. That's We love him for that. That's probably... That's probably really where his money came from and the history books just want it to seem, you know, like it was the light bulb or whatever, but no, he's a jello guy. Anyway, Peter was one of the people that lined up at the spectacle, uh, at the horse show. And he was instantly charmed by Marion. And she remembered that. So when she came back to New York City, you know, she looked him up and started wooing him and he fell for it. He was, uh, unfortunately for him, he was married to a woman named Lucy and had been married for a long time and refused to do anything to make his wife look bad. So he would, they would date Marion, but they would have to do it in secret, which she hated because she wanted to be in the press being seen with Peter and all that. His business dealings required him to travel uh, between the U.S. and Europe. So his solution to this problem with having a wife and a paramour was to buy Marianne a house in Paris. And he bought the house next door or across the street, close by, regardless. He refused to live with her because that was too scandalous in his mind. But when he'd come to Europe, they would spend all their time together. When he went back to the States, he'd entertain his wife. Well, Marianne knew there was only one way she could really force his hand on this, and that was by getting pregnant which she did. And she told Peter about this through a telegram and his kind of reaction was more along the lines of, have you ever seen those videos on TikTok or YouTube where a dad finds out he's pregnant, his wife's pregnant, and you can tell he really doesn't want another baby. <laughs> and he just has that blank stare and you feel like you're going to see this like black hole open up underneath his feet and swallow his entire world. That's kind of the impression that Peter gave. When um, Marion finally gave birth, 
She was so excited until she realized that she had a girl instead of a boy. And she was convinced that men didn't want daughters, they wanted sons. So literally, like from the moment her daughter was born, when the nurses tried to give her daughter to her, she was like, no, too tired, y'all deal with her. I can't even confirm that she named the child, but regardless, Anne came into being. Marianne didn't even tell Peter about this. It was actually the doctor who sent him a telegram. And when Peter learned, he responded with the telegram to Marianne and he said, you and the kids pack up, leave Paris and come to the United States right now. Do not delay. And the reason he was so insistent is because there was this little thing going on called World War One. You may have heard of it. So Paris wasn't a very safe place to be as a young mother. She obliged because she thought this was her way to force Peter to marry her. She uh, gets on a, uh, a boat, uh, I guess a cruise line uh, in London to, or in England to come to New York City. And it just so happens that her neighbor on the boat is a nurse. And so Marianne goes to the nurse and says, my daughter won't stop crying. I don't know what's wrong with her. I can't do this anymore. Will you please help me out? And the nurse, of course, is like, well, yeah, absolutely. Let me let me take care of her. And Marianne leaves that child with the nurse for the bulk of the trip. The nurse eventually gets fed up, and brings the child back to Marianne and says, I got stuff to do. This is your daughter. I'm sorry you're having problems with her, but I can't fix your world. Well, Marion took the baby, Anne, and had one of the crewmen bring a crib. And so she would roll the crib out on deck while she was sunbathing. And little Anne would just lay there in the sun, never get her diaper change, never get fed, never even leave the crib. She would just cry and cry and cry. And eventually the nurse saw this and saw what was going on. She was like, fine, I'll take care of Anne until we get to New York City. And it was about this time that Marianne started building this narrative that we're going to see throughout the entire case, that there's something wrong with Anne. They arrive in New York City and Marianne's real nervous because she thinks, you know, Peter's just not going to be thrilled about any of this. But she's shocked. Peter takes Anne and instantly falls in love with her. And I mean, arguably spends more time with Anne than anybody else while they're in New York City. Plays with her, loves on her. Changes her diaper, feeds her, gives her a bath, puts her down for a nap. All the stuff a parent's supposed to do, Peter's doing. Well, Marion's getting more and more impatient because even though Peter's talking about getting a divorce, he's not doing anything to get a divorce. And after a few months, uh, Marion says, look, I'm living under a rock here. I have had your child. We should be married. You have no intentions of marrying me. I'm going back to Paris. War be damned. I don't care. He tries to talk her out of it. She won't listen. She goes back to Paris. After a few months, he shows up in Paris and he announces that he has gotten the divorce. Strangely, though, he wasn't the one who filed for divorce. It was his wife, Lucy, who filed for divorce. See, she was aware of the relationship between Marianne and Peter. And she tolerated it because they had been married for so long. And she thought, Marion's just a plaything. He'll get tired of her. But when she heard about Anne, she knew it was serious. And so she filed for divorce. 
as soon as the ink was dry on that divorce order, Peter's family went bonkers. He had such a good relationship with Lucy. He doesn't know anything about this Marian woman. She looks like white trash. How do they even know that the baby's his? Has he had a paternity test? You know, all that line of questioning. He says, look, it's my baby. I love Marion. I love Anne. I'm sorry, but this is happening. So they take to the papers and do everything they can to disparage Marion to the you know, high societies of the world. Marion doesn't care because she finally got him hooked. And Peter's such a good guy. Well, relatively. Uh, that when he marries Marion, he, of course, is a great um, father towards Anne, but he actually takes the steps to legally adopt Peter Jr. And he's a great father to him. And they love it when Papa's there. He plays with them all the time. He's just everything you would expect a dad to be. But sadly, right after they got married, he started developing intestinal problems. And it was something that doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And so his health just slowly declines over the years. Now, being a man, he's macho. He won't listen to the doctors. He continues flying back to New York, doing with the, dealing with his business affairs there flying back to Europe, you know, working all the time, all that. But eventually it catches up with them and he has to be bedridden. And it's at this point that Marion says, well, I reckon I got to find me a new horse to ride. And she starts just going out on the town, hires a private nurse for her husband. And she just stays all night out at bars, visits other men's houses, and is kind of flaunting this in Peter's face. As he slowly declined, she cared less and less for him and, in fact, started bringing her suitors back to the house and would have these, you know, parties, for lack of a better term. I guess it was more of a get-together with, you know, two, three, four men at a time. That would last until two or three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, she's keeping Peter up. She's keeping the kids up, but she, she doesn't care. She's trying to get another husband. It got so bad that one night Peter's nurse came out and chastised her in front of her company and said, look, your husband is very, very sick. You've got to stop this. You need to help take care of him. You need to let him rest and stop making so much noise. This is scandalous and this is embarrassing. So what do you reckon Marianne's response to that is? She asked one of her male suitors to escort the nurse out of the house. And basically, she's thrown out into the night at two o'clock in the morning on the Paris streets with nothing. All of her clothes, all of her possessions are inside the house, and she doesn't have them. Well, Peter continues to get worse, ends up being hospitalized, and spends his final days there. Now, they, Marion would go visit him regularly arguably to keep up appearances. But of course, little Anne always holding her daddy's hand, talking to him and all that. And um, it's just heartbroken. Meanwhile, Marion would actually show up with some of her suitors. And there's rumors that during one of her visits, she has her suitor go visit with Peter and gives him some medication so that he doesn't feel so much pain. 
and Peter dies not long later. So it's speculated that he was actually poisoned, which is horrible. As soon as Peter's dead, Anne's already got her new suitor locked up, and it happens to be someone of nobility, a baron. First time she has somebody that can give her a royal title, right? Which is like the golden ticket. You know, she's Charlie and she just got her chocolate factory. So for their honeymoon, they go on this worldward tour of Europe. She meets all these, you know, princesses, and queens, and kings, and dukes, and whatever other titles are. Um, basically, everybody you should know in Europe, she got to meet. Now, the one thing that she learned that surprised her was being a member of royalty does not, it's not like winning the lottery. It's, uh, you know, it's just a title. And her husband wasn't interested in business or real estate or anything like that. He wanted to be an artist. And God bless him, he just wasn't built to be an artist. So she complains to her acquaintances that he's not doing anything to provide for her. In fact, she's having to support him because when Peter died, he left a pretty large estate and she was enjoying it. Now it was in trust and she only got a third of it. The other two thirds were for Anne. Peter Jr. was not intentionally cut out I guess, okay, technically he was, but it was because his family had lots of money and they could provide it to him. And so Peter thought that Anne needed the resources more than Peter Jr. Regardless, while they're touring Europe, you may have in your mind, well, what about the kids? Where's Peter Jr.? Where's Anne and all this? Well, Peter Jr. is almost the age of majority. Meaning he's almost a legal adult. So Marion says, you're a big boy now. Here's some cash. Good luck to you. Anne was a good bit younger and she couldn't just get rid of her that easy. So she decided to do what she felt was best. And that was have Anne committed to a sanatorium in Switzerland. See, Marianne had been building the story, like I mentioned, that something was wrong with Anne. And she had taken her to doctors throughout her life with this constant complaint of she's always pleasuring herself, starting at age three. Other problems, excuse me, other problems mixed in, but that was a constant one. You know, she's over-sexualized. And so the uh, Swiss sanatorium accepts her. And actually, Anne enjoys it there because it's the first time she's really allowed to socialize with kids her age. Um, Mariana had tried supposedly to put her in school at these prestigious private academies and reported that Anne would constantly get kicked out for being, um, you know, for disobeying the rules, just being a distraction. Um, you know, she would just not show up for class, things like that. So she was tutored at home. She had governesses that would oversee her education and she wasn't allowed to leave the apartment. So being in the sanatorium, Anne thought was actually kind of cool because there's all these kids she could meet. And she kind of fell for a boy, not in a romantic way, but they became like best buddies because he was a good storyteller. He was really funny and she liked hanging around him. 
But the way the sanatorium was designed is, you know, there's a girl's wing and a boy's wing. And the only time the two mixed were during lunch hours. And so they would sit together at lunch and he would, you know, tell all these funny stories and she'd lap it up. Finally, one day he says, listen, why don't you sneak over into my dorm and then we can hang out some more. Wouldn't that be fun? She's like all about it. She's down. So she sneaks over there, spends a few hours, sneaks back before the nurses come and do their rounds. And this becomes a habit, you know. First, it's just whenever she feels bold enough, soon it becomes every night. And she knew the nurse's schedule, so she could always dodge them. Except one night she screwed up and she fell asleep in the boys' dorm. Now, she's not in bed with the child. She falls asleep on the floor. But when the nurses come in to do their rounds and they find a little girl in the boys' dorm, they lo she, the nurse loses her mind. The nursing staff loses their mind. The administration loses their mind. You know, the nurse snatches up and drags her back to her dorm. And the hallway is telling her what a disgusting child she is. How could she do such vulgar things? Blah, blah, blah. The director of the uh, sanatorium calls Marianne and insists that they meet. Marianne comes to Switzerland and he explains to her what's been going on. Marion says, this is what I'm dealing with. I don't know what to do. And the director says, well, I'm sorry. We just can't tolerate this behavior here. You'll have to take your daughter somewhere else. It's not long after this that Marion gets fed up with her husband not making any money. She claims that she's spending $50,000 a year just to keep, take care of him. In fact, she needs more money. So she goes to the court that's administering the trust that Peter left and tells them, you know, Anne's got her share of the money and um, Marion can't access that unless it's for Anne's benefit. And she, you know, files with the court all these pleadings that lay out the story of Anne just being constant problems. And she's even been kicked out of sanatoriums and all that. And so she needs more money for Anne's medical care. And so the court says she can get $1,000 a month for Anne's medical care, 12 grand a year, right? Well, at the time in America, the average worker was making three grand a year. So just to take care of Anne's medical needs, she was getting paid four times as much as a worker was getting paid in America. And just in case you're curious, Anne was pulling out roughly $250,000 a year from her portion of the trust to live off of. So anyway, she divorces the Baron. Well, shortly after she divorces the Baron, the Baron's family comes to her and says, we don't like you. We think you're trash, and we never, ever want to hear of you using our family's name or this title. So what's it going to take to make sure that doesn't happen? Well, Anne actually didn't care. She was going to go back to using the Cooper Hewitt name, but this is an opportunity to make money, so she has to take advantage of it, right? So she negotiates with them and agrees to give up any claim to the title or the name in exchange for $85,000 cash. Once she gets back to New York, she immediately finds a new husband, a very successful criminal defense attorney. Again, the marriage doesn't take and they end up divorcing. This is in about 1934. That's where we're going to stop with Marion's portion of the story. And as you can tell, I have no ability to self-edit, but hopefully this gives you a strong feeling for who Marion was, how she acted in the environment that Anne grew up in. 
because now we're going to turn our attention over to Anne. Now, as far as Anne goes, I think we can all agree that being tossed aside to a nurse from the moment you're born and then being sent off to a sanitarium so your mom doesn't have to deal with you during her honeymoon kind of says a lot about being raised by Marion, right? In fact, whenever Anne was around, like when they were living in Paris and Marion would introduce her to her suitors, she would always say, this is my daughter, Anne. She's not quite right. In the course of these glamorous times that we all think of, you know, the, the, the Great Gatsby era, uh, if you've read the book, Anne's medically diagnosed as a moron. Yeah. So Marianne's child is technically a moron, and that's how the press refers to her. I want to interject one thing that's a little off track, but it kind of makes me sick when I hear people talk about the good old days, because inevitably the good old days are good old days just for that person. In my experience, at least in the South, it's always older white men and women talking about the good old days, how much better the 50s and 60s were, yada, yada, yada. Okay, fine. It was a good old day for them. But if you were, you know, a young black girl growing up in the South, was it a good old day? If you were an Asian man living on the West Coast, was it a good old day? And that's what we see here is if you're a woman back in this time or if you're among the working class. Is it really that great a time to be alive? Um, in fact, you know, during World War I, and then again during World War II, the rates of venereal diseases among soldiers just skyrocketed, which isn't terribly shocking in and of itself, but in order to combat this, the military ordered their police to kind of roam the area around the bases. And if they caught any women that were nearby with skirts that were just a little too short, they would actually arrest them and put them in internment camps. Yeah, we lived in a world where a woman could be held indefinitely in a military prison internment camp because she wasn't dressed appropriately in one soldier's mind. Uh, all right, back to Anne. Now, she was a bit of a problem child, and while I can't confirm the stories that Marion told, newspapers repeated them. Now, whether they took Marion at her word or whether they actually went and investigated themselves, I don't know, but it's a common thread. And with some trepidation, I will accept that as true. But I can understand that because this is a child who lived all her life under some form of restriction. She was always in a crib. She was always locked up in the house. She wasn't allowed to do anything. So when she was given freedom, she probably didn't handle it well. I mean, even the household staff were told, you cannot let Anna out of the house. And if Marion ever saw them getting close to Anne in a way that she didn't approve of, she would fire them and replace them. Now, as Anne became a teenager and was moving towards womanhood, Marion really pushed her to start getting interested in men. But for whatever reason, Anne just wasn't down with it. Or so she claimed. Now, Marion had a stack of letters that she claimed came to and were sent by Anne 
to various working class men, which she's, you know, it, when you're in Marian social circles, that's just almost a crime. Um, she had letters to chauffeurs, to bellhops, one to, and I quote here, a Negro train porter. Some of the letters, all, all of the letters were graphic, but some of them even went so far as to, and I don't know how to delicately say this, they would include Anne's adult hair, if that makes sense. So she had those collection of letters. She also insisted that Anne get evaluated by a psychologist, and she was tested. Uh, on a, she received an intelligence test where she scored in the feeble-minded range, according to Marion. And, I mean, as you can tell, Marion's doing everything she can to paint Anne as this blight upon society. You know, she's a sexual deviant. She's not intelligent. She's defiant. You know, she's on a path to being a criminal. So why would this, you know, socialite want to hang a lantern on her troubled child rather than keeping her in the shadows? Well, as we'll see, this was a time in American history when eugenics was a big deal. Eugenics is the selective breeding of humans to ensure that the best traits are passed on. That's fine, whatever. But the, the flip side of that is to ensure that eugenics would work, lots of states began passing sterilization laws, meaning that if you were being supported by the state in any way, the state could involuntarily sterilize you. Meaning, if you were in a prison, if you were an orphan, if you were mentally ill, if you were living in some, if you were destitute or handicapped and had to live as a ward of the state, at any time, for any reason, the state could come in and sterilize you and you would have no say in that process. This was not something that just the U.S. did. This was popular in Europe, too. Studies showed that while it was intended to weed out the worst among society, and I say that with air quotes, in actuality, it was used like six times more often, according to some studies, on African Americans and Hispanic Americans. What was really happening is the powerful white folks were trying to make sure that they were not outbred by the poor or immigrants or anyone they considered to be less desirable. In fact, some um, scientists who were pro-eugenics insisted that for the United States to continue to grow the way it should, somewhere around 10% of the population needed to be sterilized. Now, California provided the most sterilizations of any state, which in and of itself isn't surprising based on the population. But the South held its own. You know, collectively, if you looked at our region, the South did a lot of sterilizations. In fact, they were such procedures were known in the African-American community as Mississippi appendectomies. Because guess what? Folks in the South picked on the black community the most. Who would have ever thought, huh? Whenever this legislation was challenged, it survived all court review. In fact, when it went to the United States Supreme Court, in an opinion drafted by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who is considered like one of the all-time great 
justices on the court. He basically said, you know, it's better for the world to toss out those seeds that would give rise to undesirable fruits. Meanwhile, you have lots of churches supporting this too, particularly Methodist church, Presbyterian churches, Episcopalian churches, and they would point towards the Bible. Matthew 7, 18 through 19, wherein Jesus said, you know, you got to cut down all the trees that are producing bad fruit and burn them. That was their basis for supporting this. It got so out of hand that at like county fairs and state fairs, they would actually have uh, heritage contests, they called it, where they would take teenagers and inspect them like they do farm animals and declare who is the most fit to breed. Now, hearing all this is ghastly to me, and I hope it is to you. But a poll conducted by Fortune magazine in 1937 found that these practices were opposed by 15% of the American population, meaning implicitly 85% of the people of the country were fine with this. Now, when on earth do you get 85% of the people to agree on anything? And here they're agreeing on something that's so horrible. It's so disgusting. Now, of course, when all these eugenic-based laws were passed, came along with them came these secondary laws designed to support eugenics programs. And they were really focused on things like regulating immigration, preventing marriage across racial lines. Um, in fact, some were advocating, and I don't think these ever became law, but some people were advocating that we need to take this a step further. And what we need to do really is take all these undesirable mass breeders and separate them from the rest of society, put them in work camps. What does this sound like to you? Hmm? Yeah, you're probably right. Nazi Germany. And guess who was second behind the United States in eugenic support? The Germans. In fact, a lot of writings from American professors and doctors were studied by the Nazi party and shaped a lot of their core beliefs. Okay, so we go through all that. Oh, well, let me say this too. These programs didn't die out after we saw the horrors of World War II. Okay, that after we saw what the Nazis were doing to Jewish and uh, gypsies and Jehovah's Witnesses and all that that they held in their concentration camps, Americans didn't give up on this idea. In fact, as recently as 2019, federal courts had to intervene in the state of Tennessee because prosecutors and judges were offering inmates a 30-day reduction in their prison sentence if they would agree to voluntary sterilization. Federal courts came in and said, what is wrong with y'all. Stop this now. This is highly unconstitutional. And people are going to jail if we hear about this again. All right, so back to Anne. That's, that's what we're looking at in the world, okay? Now, the other thing that fits into what Marianne was doing was that trust that she was living off of and that Anne owned two-thirds of had a condition. And it, this condition was that if Anne died childless, then all of the trust would go to Marion. 
100%, not 33%, 100%. So Marion's creating this kind of official record of Anne's deviant behavior. We're living in a world that loves sterilizations and there's millions of dollars at stake for Marion to make sure Anne doesn't have a child. So one day during lunch, something happens and Anne develops a really bad stomach ache. And Marianne says, well, we gotta get you to the doctor. They go to the hospital and they see a doctor and the doctor does not even examine Anne. He says, you've got appendicitis, we need to operate immediately. Takes her back, he and another surgeon perform the surgery and declare her healthy. In reality, what they did was they cut her open and removed Anne's fallopian tubes. And it just so happens that people would later learn a few weeks before, Marion had gone to these two surgeons and paid them each $9,000, which was somewhere between, you know, over $100,000 in today's money to perform the sterilization. And this occurred weeks before Anne would turn 21, which would make her a legal adult in California. And Marion would have no control over the medical decisions that Anne made. All very calculated, all very scheming. And I know some of y'all are saying, okay, Brad, I get it. This is a horrible person doing a horrible thing to her child. But where's the crime in all this? You said sterilization is legal. What, what, what is this doing on a true crime podcast? We got better things to do. Good question. So let's talk about the crime. So obviously we've established, or I hope I've established in your mind that Marion's doing this for the money. You know, she's not some eugenics proponent. She doesn't believe this is going to make the world a better place. She's going to put more money in her pocket. Well, Anne doesn't know about the sterilization period until Marion goes to the court that's administering the trust and files paperwork to have 100% of the trust proceeds dumped into her coffers on the basis that Anne is now sterile. She will never have a child. And it makes no sense to wait for her to die childless before Marion inherits the money. And Anne loses it. She just goes ballistic. She goes straight to an attorney and decides she needs to sue her mom for disinheriting her. The attorney totally agrees, files a lawsuit seeking half a million dollars in damages from Marion. Well, it just so happens that that lawsuit catches the eye of the local DA. And he finds it curious because California state law is that anybody that's a ward of the state can be involuntarily sterilized. It does not allow for private involuntary sterilizations. But the reality was, not just in California, but throughout America, this was happening all the time. If you were wealthy enough to talk a doctor, pay a doctor, in other words, into performing the operation, it would be performed. And it would be performed typically under the guise of something else, as with Anne's case, appendicitis. So the DA calls the staff together and they round table it. And he says, you know, I feel like this is illegal. 
but is it criminal? And after their discussion, they decide that, yeah, it probably is. It probably is what's known or what was known as mayhem. So what is mayhem? Besides one of the coolest sounding crimes, right? Mayhem is when you've suffered an assault that was so vicious, you've lost some the use of some part of your body. You're handicapped, you're deformed, you've lost a limb, something like that. You know, we're at a Christmas party, you, you, you do bath salts in the bathroom, and you come out with a throwing axe, and you chop off my arm. That's mayhem. Today, we typically call it aggravated assault. So kind of in the world of the assault hierarchies, there's regular assault where, you know, you jump me and you beat me up. There's aggravated assault or mayhem. Hey, you jump me, you beat me up, and now I don't have a right arm. Then there's attempted murder. You jump me, beat me up, and tried to kill me. And then murder. Yeah. You jump me, you beat me up, and you killed me. To, again, the key point is it has to be assault, which is an, un an unlawful touching, and it has to leave you handicapped, deformed in some way. Now, what's interesting is legal scholars, and I can't believe I'm, I'm telling this, legal scholars debated whether involuntary sterilization could rise to mayhem because they didn't understand how a woman's body worked was the female sexual organs there for sexual pleasure or were they there for reproduction? If you found that they were there for sexual pleasure, then there's no mayhem because nothing really has been lost. If they're there for reproduction, then yeah, you've probably got a case of mayhem. This is what law professors were arguing, okay? Like allegedly the smartest of the smartest of the lawyers. <sighs> Now, prosecutors didn't just announce that they were bringing these charges. They, they wanted to do some investigations, and they wanted to do it covertly. And so they were poking around. They got Ann's medical records, and they learned that they had been changed after the fact. They had a, an agreement to have the procedure done with Ann's signature forged on there. The surgical notes were changed to from an appendectomy to the sterilization. Um, and the sterilization was needed because allegedly there were tumors growing in and around Anne's uterus, which would explain why the incision was much lower than where it should be for an appendectomy. They also learned that once rumors started flying that they were investigating, Marion's attorneys had started sending threatening letters to potential witnesses not just in California, but anybody who knew Marianne. Like even that nurse that got tossed out on the street in Paris at two in the morning, she got a threatening letter. The uh, investigators for the DA also learned from a California state health officer that the way the law was being enforced, they would literally, health officers would literally drive around and pluck people off the streets solely for the purpose of sterilization. And in their defense, and I say that rolling my eyes, they would only pick the quote-unquote worst of society, which to them were the homeless, the impoverished, and homosexuals. 
Now, the DA gathered all this, and he was really confident that they had a good case here. And he knew the impact of this case. If they got these doctors in jail for performing this involuntary sterilization, doctors across America would have puckered buttholes. <laughs> you know, like everything, I mean, laws would have to change. Hospital procedures would have to change. Everything, you know, this would just destroy all of the eugenics arguments. And so they were real excited about going through with this because of the, the positive impact it can make in society. Now, it was key, though, that Anne testify, because without her testimony, they wouldn't really have enough to sell this crime to a jury, in the DA's opinion. And Anne's attorney, he said, look, she's on fire about this. She will testify, no problem. So back in those days, to get to formally charge somebody, the victim had to sign an affidavit. And nothing could be done until that was, you know, that, that was checked off the list. The affidavit was presented to Anne, and she didn't understand why she had to sign it. And in fact, refused to sign it. She said, I've told you everything that should be good enough. I'm not signing this. Which isn't a good sign for the DA, right? Now, their only option because of that was they could do this special preliminary hearing where they go before a judge and they present evidence and testimony and the judge then says, okay, you can go forward with these criminal charges and I'll sign the arrest warrants. And so they have no choice but to do that. And at the hearing, for whatever reason, Anne agrees to testify. And she does a beautiful job. She is charming. She comes across as sophisticated intelligent and you know the DA is able to make this point of how is this woman considered feeble-minded and a danger to society such that we need to sterilize her and so the judge agreed let the criminal charges move forward sign the arrest warrants the two surgeons were arrested immediately the psychologist that declared Anne feeble-minded which gave them the authority to perform the sterilization was arrested and Marion was arrested. Well, Marion was to be arrested, but she knew what was happening and she skipped town. While they were looking for her, she was on a train from San Francisco to New Jersey. So, and that was fine with the prosecution because they realized that we got to nail the doctors first. If we can get the doctors found guilty, everything falls into place. So, they go to trial in August of 1936, and it's as big a circus as you can imagine. And, you know, the press is describing it as the heiress's daughter, feeble-minded daughter, trying to put away these two respected surgeons in jail. And the DA, the prosecution does a pretty good job laying out their case. You know, they get doctor to testify after you read the x-rays, he, had, you know, said the fallopian tubes had been removed. He admitted that that was not standard procedure. And the only reason you would do that was to make doubly sure that the person could never, ever reproduce. There's evidence of the money being paid to the doctors that comes in. They're building their case up beautifully. And it's time for Anne to testify. And remember, at that preliminary hearing, 
she just knocked it out of the park. So they're viewing this as the cherry on top. Anne gets up on, um, takes a stand, and absolutely, totally chokes. She's stumbling to answer even the most basic questions. She starts falling into these coughing fits whenever she has a tough question. In fact, it gets so bad when she has a coughing fit over a particularly difficult question during cross-examination that the judge gets frustrated and declares that they're done with testimony for the day. They would resume the trial on Monday and Anne better spend that time resting and come back Monday morning with no more coughing fits. So they break for the weekend and Anne spends that weekend working with her attorney to learn how to answer questions better. And when she comes back on Monday, she does a much better job. And she spends a lot of time explaining the abuse she suffered at the hands of her mother. How, you know, she was regularly slapped. She would get pushed down, knocked down. Um, there was a time where her mother was drunk and broke a wine glass and cut her. And she showed the jury the scar across her forehead from it. She also claimed that um, her mom, you know, same sort of deal. She was trying to stop her mom from doing something. Mom got angry, burned her with a cigarette on her arm. She rolled down her gloves to show the jury that. So she did, she kind of redeemed herself a little bit. And the prosecution rested and they felt really, really good about their case. The defense arguably didn't put up much of a fight. But what they did was kind of brilliant. There's a tendency among juries to always believe a doctor. There's no reason for a doctor to lie in their mind. Now, this is in spite of the fact that we've got forged medical records and all that in this case. But the doctors chose not to take the stand. Instead, apparently California law at the time allowed for a defendant to testify through affidavit. And so they executed affidavits that the clerk of the court read to the jury. And so they were able to give their position on why they performed the sterilization, why they found it necessary and all that. And the beauty of that is they were not subject to cross-examination. The affidavits were just read in and there's nothing the prosecution could do about it. Now, that's not allowed in Alabama. I don't know of any state where it is allowed. Even if it's allowed, it's not a good tactic in today's world because jurors are always very suspicious of someone who won't get up there and face the music. They want to hear a criminal defendant say, I didn't do this. But again, you've got a doctor and juries give doctors a lot of deference. They always have. Um, and so them being able to tell their story without being hassled or tripped up by the prosecution worked because when the defense rested, the judge was furious and he said, this is the biggest waste of taxpayer dollars I've ever seen. Sterilization is legal in the state of California. He didn't get the distinction of the private versus the public sterilization. And he dismissed all charges. Now, of course, as soon as that decision came down, all the big eugenic proponents celebrated it. They mailed off the decision to doctors and politicians and lobbyists and anybody else who may have influence on it. And it always included a letter talking about how, you know, what we're doing has been declared legal, so keep on at it. 
now remember too, we've still got an arrest warrant out for Marion. And when the, the DA decided, well, let's try to get her. Maybe we can paint her as the real bad guy in this. Even though she didn't perform the procedure, she was, but for her actions, the procedure occurred, you know, or would not have occurred. So they tried to have her extradited to California and the New Jersey courts refused because she had suffered what the press was calling a nervous breakdown and was in a psych ward at the time. But it had leaked shortly before the extradition request came that she didn't have a nervous breakdown. She tried to commit suicide. And at that time, that was illegal. So she was facing a criminal charge in New Jersey. She was still under a doctor's care. She was still being held in the psychiatric ward. And she, um, Anne had filed her civil suit both in California and in New Jersey. So the judge said, she's got too many legal issues. She's got to work out here first. I'm not sending her to California. California's governor appealed to New Jersey's governor, basically said, I'm not getting in the middle of this. You know, when the court says she can be extradited, we'll extradite her. Marianne's health went up and down and up and down and up and down. You know, half the population thought she was doing it to avoid any criminal prosecution. The other half were very sympathetic towards her. She eventually got well enough to deal with the suicide charge. And there's pictures you can find of her approaching the courthouse being escorted by two nurses looking as feeble and as weak as possible. I believe that to be an act. Um, she cleared up the, you know, they, they got the suicide charge dismissed. The civil suit was settled. She ended up paying Anne $150,000 out of the 500000 she requested. And so at that point, the court said, okay, California, come and get her. Well, after she settled the civil suit, Anne went to the DA and said, look, I'm not testifying again. That was no fun. I didn't like it. It really gave me a lot of anxiety. If you're going to prosecute my mom, you're going to do it without me. Well, the prosecutors said, we can't do it without you. So um, they tried to dismiss the charges. And interestingly, the court wouldn't allow them to. And so there was enough evidence to allow the charges to remain. But what the court did is kind of put it on the back burner. And ultimately, Marion ended up passing away from a stroke in 1939. So she never did face those criminal charges. When her mother died, Anne had a nervous breakdown. It really, really bothered her that her and her mom were never able to set things straight. And in fact... Despite having this breakdown, you know, she took a train across the country to be there for her mom's funeral in New Jersey. And she was the last person to leave the graveside. And reporters who were snooping around saw her, you know, dramatically leaning against the tombstone, boohooing, um, and I guess talking to it, you know, apologizing to her mother. Now, sadly, Anne kind of followed in her mom's footsteps. She wasn't out for money or glory or anything like that, but she did have a lot of problems with men. Um, she she did she married blue blue collar types. Um, she tried to stay out of the press's eye, but every ex husband kind of told the same story when they were interviewed by the press that when they married, Anne was just so 
I guess, traumatized by what she had done or what she had endured growing up, that she could never really open herself up to her husband. And so the husband felt like they were roommates more than a married couple. She would spend a lot of time alone. She would spend a lot of time crying and she just couldn't process what she had been through very well. And so inevitably they just, you know, they, they broke and it would end up breaking up for one reason or another. But Anne was remarkably callous um, about marriage. And I say that because one of her uh, husbands was a DJ in a little town in California. And they started dating, but the DJ was married. The radio station said, you can't work here if you're going to be dating while married. That's just too scandalous for us. So Anne and the DJ went to confront the wife and said, look, we're together now. You need to bow out gracefully. And shockingly, the wife said, okay, fine. That's what y'all want. I'll do it. And a few days later, she was found dead. Suicide. She had left a suicide note saying, y'all wanted me out of the way. I'm out of the way. The two ended up getting married on the same day. The poor woman was buried. And still had some of those traits of her mom, you know, where she was very self-centered and it was all about her. Um, and I, I just can't imagine someone being that, that heartless. Anne's only real media splash after the trial was her, I believe it was her fourth husband, convinced her to run for the U.S. Senate in 1950. And so she made this grand proclamation about what she was going to do, how she was going to change the world. And that got a bunch of media attention. It was a very crowded field. A bunch of people were running for the office. And Anne never really campaigned, never really did much to follow through. And a few months later, just quietly dropped out of the race. And soon divorced that husband. Last husband she married, uh, she convinced him that she wanted to live in Mexico. She wanted to get out from underneath the American media's thumb. So they moved down to Mexico and she loved it because she said she could walk the streets, she could go to cafes, she could go to the market and nobody knew who she was. Nobody would ask her probing questions. She was just a regular person. And in fact, she died in Mexico um, by cancer. And when she did, she was almost a footnote to the media despite being such a headliner for so long, her death was reported by very few papers at the time. So that's our story for this week. Again, I recognize this is an odd case to talk about, but I just thought it was so interesting. And plus, this is what happens when y'all let me take a couple weeks off. I dig in deep into some case I really shouldn't be. But, you know, I love how it showed the world from a hundred years ago, how different it was. And it's such an odd criminal prosecution that I thought it was neat. And of course I have lots of thoughts here. The first thing I have to say is all of this legal crap was a waste of time, all of it, because nobody got Peter's will. Apparently Peter's will did not say that Anne would inherit when she had children. Peter's will said that Anne would inherit, but if she died childless, it would all go to Marion. So 
her being sterilized should not affect her inheritance, right? It seems like the whole purpose of the will, Peter wanted Anne to be taken care of. But if she didn't have any children, there was no reason for that money to pass on down the line because there's no line to go down. So in that case, it would go back to Marion. And nobody picks up on this, from what I can tell. This argument's never made in any of these cases. To me, there was no risk of Anne losing her inheritance. She just had to be alive. <laughs> if she dies without child, she loses it. But she's dead then, so who cares? So really what Marion should have done is bribe the doctors to kill Anne, not just sterilize her. The whole mayhem prosecution is wild to me because it raises all these questions that I can't imagine being debated in a court of law today. I mean, can you imagine listening to two attorneys argue about whether a female sexual organ exists for pleasure or procreation and that really have an impact on the case? And it, that's even silly, too, for the times, because we have testimony from doctors that the whole purpose of doing the procedure was so she could not reproduce. So why are we even arguing whether or not it was for reproduction or sexual gratification? It was for reproduction. That's an established fact. <laughs> There's nothing to question there. This makes me kind of hate the fact that I wasn't a lawyer during the 20s or 30s, because I think I could have kicked some serious butt in court. I mean, I would have made dozens of dollars each day, which, according to Google, is like a million dollars a day. I also kind of thought the historical and sociological side of things was really interesting. And of course, I'm totally qualified to discuss all this, but it's just bizarre to me that these clearly racist and classist practices were not only adopted, but were supported by so much of the American population. And the irony of it is, yes, you know, Hispanic Americans and African Americans were being victimized by this at a much higher rate. But that's only of the public sterilizations that we have that data for. We don't know about the private sterilizations. And I guarantee you, it's mostly white folks who are paying for those private sterilizations. So... Here we are, white people trying to, you know, pass all these laws so that the rich white folks can make sure the perfect breeding stock continues to grow in America. And they're the ones using this law to take away the reproductive rights of their own kin. It's totally bizarre. <laughs> um, and it also shows to me, at least, that you know, individually, a lot of us are intelligent, we're well-read, you know, we have weaknesses, we have strengths and all that. But collectively, humans are stupid. And here we have 85% of the population supporting a policy that really only benefits the top 5%, the top 1%. I mean, it's shameful. It's just shameful. And we've apparently just always been easy creatures to fool. And I hate that. I wish we I wish we wouldn't support programs that are not in our best interest, but clearly throughout the course of American history we have. Um, there are a lot of rumors that I found interesting that 
Once all the legal circus started, Marianne and Anne started communicating privately. Marianne, of course, didn't want to go through all this. Anne, in my opinion, was probably a little bit naive and didn't really know what she was kicking up. And so there's lots of rumors that Marianne was willing to pay anything to make this go away. And calling that a rumor may be too much because there's recorded testimony from the case that Anne's lawyers tried to bribe, I'm sorry, that Marion's lawyers tried to bribe Anne's lawyer into dismissing the civil suit. And they basically say, we'll send you a blank check. You write whatever number you want on it. And to his credit, he refused. He said, you know, no, my client wants this to go to trial. I don't have the authorization to settle and I'm not going to do it. I won't be bribed. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me that Anne would start this ball rolling and then instantly try to remove herself from it, particularly the criminal prosecution. So I feel without really being able to point to any evidence, I just have a feeling that Marianne influenced her in some way to protect her own interests. You know, like, I'm so sorry. I was a terrible mother. I've learned that now. I'm, I'll do anything to make this up to you. You know, I want you to come visit me. I want us to have a relationship. But, you know, I can't talk to you while this is going on. My lawyers have said blah, blah, blah. Something like that, I think, went down. And, you know, part of me thinks that's why you see Anne crying at the tombstone at the end of Marion's life. I could be way off there. It could just be that Anne you know, did love her mother because obviously you only have one mother and you hear lots of stories of people who have had a terrible mother or a terrible father who still suffer a lot of grief when they're gone because there is that special bond there for better or worse. But her being so upset and putting on such a show makes me think that Marianne had gotten to her somehow. I think our takeaways from this episode should be number one, we learned a fun new criminal term, right? Mayhem. You can impress your friends, your family, your co-workers with that. Bring it up at the next cocktail party you go to. Number two, people in the early 1900s were just as crazy, if not more crazy, than we are for celebrities, right? I mean, I can tell you when I was researching this, I read... Tons of stories about society reporters bribing maids, bribing cooks, bribing family members, bribing neighbors, bribing garbage men to get dirt on whoever they were writing a story about. Uh, I mean, they did tactics that TMZ would be ashamed of. I can only imagine what it would be like if, you know, TikTok and Instagram and all that existed back then. Takeaway number three. Um... If you were black, Hispanic, Asian, female, homosexual, poor, handicapped, criminal, homeless, mentally ill, or basically just not rich, not a healthy white male, life kind of sucked. It really did. And I, I, you know, I mean, we're talking about, yeah, you can be sterilized at any point in time, but if 85% of America is okay with that, what other abuse did you suffer at the hands of the upper class during that time? So it kind of of makes me thankful we live in these times. Point number four, 
There were a lot of stupid attorneys a hundred years ago. <laughs> I'm really appalled by this. And what's even more appalling is they made way more money than me. Like, you, you shouldn't be stupider and richer, you know, than than me. That that just that doesn't cut it. That's that doesn't jive in my world. I think we can all agree that that's wrong. Brad should be on top, right? Lastly, um, I'm impressed that even though divorce was as frowned upon as it was and as difficult for a woman to obtain as it was, Marion and Anne both had five husbands, which meant they were divorced or had their marriage annulled at least four times. That's pretty impressive to me. That, that Those are stubborn women right there. <laughs> so... That's a wrap for this episode. I hope y'all didn't hate this because I know it goes way outside the normal bounds of true crime, but I thought it'd be interesting. I like learning new things. I hope y'all do too. But don't worry, next week we've got a much more traditional case. It's just a good old-fashioned killing with lots of weird questions around it. Um, so let's get to our first palate cleanser of the year, shall we? And, and I like this one, given... Mr. Eli, two weeks off, I think. It's kind of paid dividends. Here we go. Did you know that, by law, you have to turn your headlights on when it's raining in Sweden? And that's just freaking ridiculous. How are we supposed to know when it's raining in Sweden? If that does not fall into the category of a dad joke, I don't know what does, but it's a brilliant one. So, y'all, thank you so much for tuning in to our fine program. We appreciate all of y'all's listeners, every single one of you, even that guy in the back wearing that goofy shirt. As always, we'd ask respectfully that if you could share us with your friends and family and co-workers and strangers on the bus, that would be awesome. Leaving us a nice review. You know, Spotify does reviews now, which is apparently is supposed to be life-changing, but wherever you listen, leave us a a hopefully kind review. If there's uh, some issue you have with the podcast, you, you can email me. It's info at kmhpodcast.com. Uh, and, you know, I, I'll be happy. I want this podcast to sound good. I want it to be enjoyable. And if I'm doing something that makes it not so enjoyable for you, let me know. Please don't just leave a pithy little review. We have a lovely little Facebook group you can join. Just look for Killing Missing Hidden on Facebook. We're on there. To join, you only have to answer three questions. And they are, what's your favorite episode? What do we call the joke at the end of every episode? And you understand you have to answer these questions. I think that's a pretty low bar. And I do it just to keep people out from, you know, spamming us with crap. But still, a lot of people don't answer those questions. And I have to reject a lot because of that. So please keep that in mind. We're rolling around on Twitter. Um, so you can check us out there. If you know of any other social media websites, platforms we should be on, please let me know. I'm an old man. I'm tired. I don't know about TikToks and flippity flops and things like that. But if, if y'all could educate me, I'm certainly open to it because I don't know what I'm doing. I know y'all know that. I don't have to say it. And with that, I think I'm done talking. So everyone, keep being excellent to each other. And with that, I'll say I'll see you on the flip side.
Right out. You survived another episode of Killing Miss and Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.